This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 70. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. On the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we tackle topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gelhouse, and we're going to talk 40 Smith and what? Yeah, so, uh, you know, when we came into law enforcement, when I did, you know, the 40 was like the thing, right? So, first, thank you, Excess Sites, title sponsor of the podcast. Check them out at excesssites.com. CCW Safe, enter code OFFDUTY10 at checkout. Get you 10% off your membership. EDC Belt Company, the foundation belt. You know them. We love them. EDCBeltCo.com. So, last week, sorry guys, got a little bronchitis business. I just got over it. So, uh, it was the post-vid present. And uh, so, here we are back endeavoring to persevere. Had a couple of little like medical deals this uh, last couple of months that have kept me from doing my favorite activity, which is talking or shooting or talking about shooting. So without further delay and, uh, hopefully, uh, no other medical issues, uh, let's bring in our guest and we're live. Eric Gelhouse. Welcome back. I said that. So half of the interwebs are now intoxicated. So break up. I don't know where that joke came from, but uh, in my neck of the woods here, it's before noon, and we we are both drinking coffee. So, <laughs> cheers. Mm. So either way, uh, congratulations on the new gig for the listening audience that doesn't know you're now. Give me your official title. So I'm the the online editor, the only editor for American Cop Magazine. Uh, that's one of the firearms media group publicate well publications. F- FMG. Um, yeah, you probably know them, American Handgunner, Guns, Shooting Industry. American Cop was a print magazine from about 05 to 2016, went away. They brought it back um, in an online version maybe two years ago, yeah. if that. Um, and then I just replaced the last editor who, oddly enough, was the guy who hired me, gave me my first gig as a writer back in 02. Oh, cool. So, yeah, American Cop, I remember... Uh you know, in my youth as a policeman from like Oh two to about Oh eight, you know, that was kind of, that was one of the publications that I would always go to. It was cause it was on the rack next to American yeah. handgunner and who in the gun toting populace does not long for the, every, you know, the, the bi-monthly or whatever, every other month that you get to see all the cool, sexy guns come out on the American handgunner, right? Oh, oh, the cover shots. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just, it was like the supplement between months that I would buy. I'd be like, okay. Yeah. American cop and, uh, love FMG publications. They, if for nothing else other than they do the best photo work of any, any publication out there. So this is going to kind of end up being, it's not exclusively a cop magazine. It's, uh, for law enforcement and decent normal human beings. Right. Um, it's probably going to end up once I kind of get my feet under me with it somewhere between the old SWAT magazine and police marksman association. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. 
um, or the old police marksman magazines. You know, yes, we're going to talk about gear, but we're also going to talk about what we're doing with it and why, and then, then add the stuff in for both communities. Awesome. Yeah. The, uh, oddly enough. So you called me last week and you said, we ought to do a deal because of the cop audience on the 40 Smith and Wesson to which I was a longtime carrier of. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, you know, that sounds good. And I kind of just, I, I put it in the back of the brain for a little bit and let it stew. And within like four hours, I got two emails. Hey, how come cops aren't real big on 40 Smith anymore? And I'm like, Eric is like the Nostradamus of, uh, the listening audience here that uh, for what they demand. So here we are. Yeah. 40 Smith and what is what I called the episode because the new generation of cops that I'm seeing, they don't even know what that is. Right. right? Like in the last five years, it just nose dived off the cliff. And, uh, and there were some, um, determinant factors behind the scenes that went on and we won't disparage gun companies too hard, but, uh, too hard. Yeah. Too hard. But, uh, one in particular had some, uh, some, some issues. And that kind of started the decline of not only that gun, but also that cartridge, I think. So kind of wave top, how we got to the 40 in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to hit it at a wave top level because I wasn't involved anywhere near any of this stuff at the time it happened. So you had the FBI Miami shootout in 1986. Yes. Uh, For whatever reason, the focus after the event was on the performance of the 115 grain Winchester Western silver tip that was used in the semi-auto pistols during the event. Yeah. I think there were other factors at play, but that seemed to be what somebody focused on. That led the FBI to a full house 10 millimeters, a compromise between the 45 ACP and the nine millimeter bigger bullets, more bullets. They settled on the 10 there. My understanding is there were a couple of evolutions of downloading that cartridge to make it shootable for all agents. Cause uh, one, one large federal agency had been through an issue with females and shooting ability. And there was a settlement as I recall that came out of it, not a jury decision. Yeah. Going forward, even that downloaded 10 was still a little bit problematic. So what came out of it was the 40 cal. They were able to take the cart 10 mil cartridge, cut it down, reduce the power load in it. Now it would fit into a nine mil. Voila, we have the 40 cal pistol. Right. And the problem with that is in the initial run to initial rush to get to market where some agencies, some sorry, manufacturers were building it on a steel frame gun. At least one was building it on a polymer frame gun and treating it. It mechanically is no different than the nine mils. They were shooting out of the same gun. Yeah. So that was probably what mid mid late nineties. Yeah, that, that I, was ninety six, ninety five, you know, right in there. My agency made the decision to go to a forty cal, and I'd been a firearms instructor for a couple years when that came up. And when we did the testing process, we looked at the forties that were out there for duty, and it was a Glock model twenty two, HK USP, Beretta ninety six, Smith forty oh sixes. Yep regionally we had seen some issues with the Smith's four digit pistols. So we weren't thrilled with them and we'd had experiences with the nine mil four digit Smith. So we, we walked kind of walked away from it. Uh, there weren't a lot of fans of the Breda pistol, um, not because it was a bad gun, but because of the operating system, people were concerned about the decocker mm-hmm. that kind of led us to looking at the USP and the Glock. We did the head to head testing. 
the USP won the testing, but when it came to cost, yeah, the Glock kicked the snot out of it. So we we went to a Gen three Glock in the late ni- late nineties. Probably two thousand was the first hiccup because one of my coworkers had mounted on a like an insights or a streamlight pistol yeah. light all plastic pistol yep. on the gun. He was having problems with it. He found some documentation. Again, this is the OO time frame mm-hmm. about changing the number of springs in the magazine, number of coil springs in the magazine. So you had to go from like a 10 to an 11 coil spring. And that was the fix. Cause that would then shove the next round up fast enough mm-hmm. that the slide that was recoiling faster than normal because you'd lost the flex on the frame yep. now was actually in sync. So you wouldn't have it. So that was, two, that was 2000 that Terry found that. Yeah. And we were probably on serial guns that started with serial numbers in the E at that ease at that time. Yeah. So same same before, here. Yeah. Not too long before I went to Iraq, you know, four, we started having uh, Glock started having issues with frame rails breaking. And there, there was a problem with it. So we then ended up getting a bunch of redone guns that were one E yep. and then the rest of the serial number. I could give you the serial number to my issued gun right now. And between a basic academy and a, an advanced firearm school, that gun went back and came back with a one US and then yep. an E serial number. Yeah. So you've got one of those guns. Oh, it's long gone now. I, I Well, yeah, we had it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so... Everything was kind of okay. We get to, I, I'm going to say it's the 06, 07 timeframe, but I know Chuck Haggard, who was a, who was a cop in Kansas. He still is. He's, I think he's, he's at least a lieutenant with a smaller agency now in his 12th career or something. Chuck was able to track design changes on the Gen 3 guns on the frames. Like he yeah. could look at, he could look at the frames and he, I, I think he was the one who photographed them where you were seeing design changes over time, G, H, I, J, different guns. I'm sitting back here on the West Coast going, why isn't this happening to us? Why aren't we seeing the problems that other agencies are talking about? And we kind of kicked around bullets before we went live on this. Yeah. But at the time, unless you were on our SWAT team, the vast majority of the people in my agency, handgun shooting was on an indoor range with frangible ammo. So really light bullets going really fast. Okay. Um, and so we weren't seeing the stoppages. We weren't seeing the problems that other places were shooting ball ammo or jacketed hollow points on a regular basis. About 2009, 2010, this kind of stuff starts to come to a head with the pistols. And it's not the performance of the ammunition. The ammunition is doing phenomenal work based on feedback in the street the problems are in the reliability of some of the guns that are involved. Right. We, um, you know, my, my experience was pretty similar. And I remember uh, a friend of mine who was an instructor when the 40 became a big thing, he went and purchased one of the first USPs I'd ever seen. Um, And that gun, he still owns it and it still runs lights out. Right. Um, and I can remember, like he said, you know, this is going to be the thing. Like law enforcement is going to transition because at the time, the forty-five was was pretty much too much for most people uh, in in a duty size platform. You know, the Glock, the old Glock twenty ones. I mean, they were they were a two by four with a slide yep. on top of it, right? 
so the capacity thing was an issue. Um, and then nine millimeter at the time, you know, we, we had issued 147 Hydroshock, 115 Winchester silver tip, all the ammunition that you read back in history that was mediocre at best, um, in performance. And we're talking, you know, mid nineties, late eighties to mid nineties, uh, early two thousands. Well, when I got hired into LE work, um, I had purchased a Glock 35. I was shooting limited USPSA, IDPA, all these things on the East Coast with it. And I had some of these long-haired bodybuilder-looking dudes that worked at a unit at Fort Bragg, and they're looking at my gun, and they're like, hey, pal, let me see that. And one of them peels it apart and goes, yeah, this has got the long locking block and this and that and the other, and you need to call Glock. And and a Glock reps at a match, and I hand him my gun, and he goes, here's a shipping label. We'll get it back to you next week. And on and on we go. So, and the other thing that they were real cognizant of was, hey, you can run that gun, but you're going to have to, it, like, 180 grain ammo ain't your thing. Like, you're going to have to drop it to 165, 155. And I was like, okay, why? I said, well, it just it doesn't jive with that, with that platform, the 180s. And I, so, even in my young 22 year old mind, I went, well, why would I carry 15 rounds of this? That's 17 grains more weight than a nine millimeter. And I can get 19 of those. Like that's where it went. Well, fast forward. I'm in the police Academy. We peel our guns apart. We field strip them the very first time. And two years after I'd gotten that Glock 35, here's a G 22 with a long locking block in it. And I look at the assistant range master I'd known my whole life. And I go, hey, pal, these had an upgrade. And he's like, oh, you know, rookie. Well, the office closes. The doors of the office close and phone calls get made. And at the end of our academy, those guns all went back to Smyrna. And they all came back with a different serial number. So that's my history with that gun. Yeah. So you also had some things going on at the time where weapon-mounted lights were getting more and more popular. Yes. Uh, Inside M3 was the thing. 80 lumens. Inside M3, the Streamlight, right? Um, Surefire had gone from the old classic lights that you you had to go to a leg holster to carry because of the way they were. They were so big. Then the Nitrolon and the Mill Light, Nitrolon light I carried on duty on my 1911 with a Dawson rail. You're speaking Greek to some of the younger listening audience right now, right? so (laughs) not to go too far afield, but the Dawson rail was basically a real thin, small rail that would fit on the underside of the, well, fit on the dust cover of a 1911. You would bolt it and silver solder it in place. Mm-hmm. You then had an adapter that dropped into first the Nitrolon lights, which were like a high impact polymer. Yep. With the old uh, horseshoe SL switch. Yep. You could then make that onto your 1911, or I think they had them for the Breda 92s as well. They did. That was followed by the X200s, which were the first of the X-series lights. And the original ones had a diamond-shaped beam. Not a round beam, but it was a diamond-shaped beam going out because of the LED. They also would take the SL switches. Then we got to the X300s. The DG switches came in, right? I'm still talking Greek, aren't I? Well, for the the listener, uh, that was a whole lot. Um, The Dawson... (laughs) The Dawson rail was essentially like a weaver rail 
scope yeah. rail that you would drill and tap, have a gunsmith drill and tap your dust cover and silver solder it and all that. And the holster selection, we are in a heyday right now because I can remember there just weren't many options out there for anything. Um, and then good news. Uh, the good news back then was Safari lands. Safari land would actually work with you. You could yeah. call Safari land and say, Hey, I need a 6280 for this. Yep. And you could probably get it if somebody had done something with it. There was no will fit. There was no 10 no. character, you know, model number. You could get stuff. Um, Anyway, to get out of the 1911 rabbit hole, because I was the guy in the corner carrying my 1911, not a Glock then. Yeah. As you, more and more lights got on to the guns, one of the things that putting a pistol-mounted light on a polymer frame did was it took away some of the flex. Mm-hmm. And when you took away some of the flex, you increased the speed at which the slide slammed back and forth. And then you had to deal with the springs in the magazine feeding the next round. Yet another problem going on at the time. And it wasn't until 2007, taking an armor's class from Tuller, and it was probably my fourth or fifth clock armor's class, that Tuller even came out and said, hey, there's a round count. Here's the service life on this stuff. Recoil spring assemblies need to go away at, at this many rounds and everything else. And up till that, we'd been hearing, nope, there was no round count. There was no service life. Now we knew there should have been. Right. But nobody was giving them to us, so it was more like, okay, when the thing stops working, then you replace the parts. Say, I heard the same speech. Yeah. <clears throat> so we get to a point in 2010 where, like I said, I talked about Chuck Haggard. Haggard experienced it. LAPD had experienced, but they were under a gag order. Uh, Oakland PD had experienced. They were under a gag order, and now we get to a point where who's a dog handler at my agency goes to an outdoor range. He's too late. He wasn't going to walk back to his ride to undo all his duty ammo. So he went and shot the training part with his duty ammo and it started having stoppage after stoppage, basically this internal stovepipe looking thing. Yeah. Right. Where it wouldn't feed the next round. So I get a phone call. Hey, do you know anything about this? Yeah. I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. You're like, okay, well, can you meet the guy tomorrow? Take him to the range and see. Yeah, absolutely. So we go to the range and sure enough, this gun, we were getting two, three stoppages per magazine mm-hmm. and it was cleaned. It was lubed, right? But with a light on it, for whatever reason, it wasn't working. So it seen what was going on with everybody else and heard about it talking to guys. We had just gone through an inspection cycle where we knew how many folks had lights on the guts and out of about 250 deputies i had 76 77 guys carrying gen 22s with lights on i gen 322s with lights on we had the ammo to do it we got everybody out to the range ran them through 100 rounds of ammo with those guns and over half of them failed to get through 100 rounds without a stoppage and, and so the purpose of this is not to disparage what was going on with the company. It was more, it's more to give you a little insight into why that cartridge kind of died. Uh, so uh, I'll take out all the things we did, but I will say the company was accommodating. Uh, they sent us the parts to remediate about 16 guns. We retested them. We had a number of failures and what the company did was replace the gen threes with the gen fours. Mm-hmm. So they knew they knew there were there were issues with that platform, that cartridge, 
at the time. We'd even had, we had one gun that I know for a fact had less than 500 rounds through it, never had a light on it, that had one of those inline stovepipe failures uh, when a deputy was attacked by a pit bull. Yeah. He got one round off and got the inline failure without a light ever being on it or more than 500 rounds through the gun. So that drove us to the Gen 4s. Um, and a number of agencies were experiencing the same things. And I know LAPD had engineers from Glock out to look at the problems. And they, they worked on some designs. And I'm sure those were what came into the Gen 4. I've heard that an Army unit who had them at the time had some input on what became ultimately became the Gen 4 pistols mm-hmm. um, peripherally. But <clears throat> so... And then the Gen 4s got out there, either whether they were direct replacements from Glock or whether they were bought outright by their agencies, and the Gen 4s started having problems. This For us, it was the 2014 timeframe, 2013, mm-hmm. 2014, we started seeing the issues. By then, all the work that had been done on handgun ballistics and performance at in the aftermath of the 1986 FBI shootout had gotten to the point where all handgun ammo was on a much closer together performance wise, but the nine, the nine mil had really improved in comparison to what it was. So now you've got kind of the common, the most common pistol, most common cartridge that's having some issues. You've got nine mil ammo. That's really performing. Well, it's less expensive gun holds more, in theory, it's easier to teach people to shoot because you also buy more training ammo for the same amount of dollar. You're not having to change holsters. You're not having to change mag pouches. Mm-hmm. Your tra- the extent of your transition training is minimized because it's essentially the same operating system. You're just, you're just sending out a smaller diameter projectile. And that kind of became a win-win. Yeah. And then with optics coming into the equation, the nine mil was not pounding on the on the pistol and I don't understand all the engineering terms, but it wasn't doing the damage to the optic the way a 40 cal was. Yeah. The, um, yeah, that, that, that kind of mirrors the experience the Midwest was having. Um, and we just uh, large, largely a lot of agencies just said, Hey, no more 40 cal Glocks. Yeah. And when that happened, um, most of your recruit training started switching over to nine millimeter, and the big one for me, people ask me, like when I first got out of the, uh, out of the academy in 03 and hit the street, I immediately bought a SIG 220 uh, because I loved the 1911 and I couldn't carry a single action gun, right? So what's, what's the next best thing? So I carried that and uh, we, we were shooting 230 grain gold dot. And I'm like, perfect. Um, and then the 40 cal, we started getting bonded ammo. It said bonded started becoming a thing in like, Oh, five ish. And so I said, okay, I'm going to jump over to the 40. So I bought a two, two, six, right. And in 40 Cal, um, and I ran that for like 11 years. I didn't really run that gun too hard. I went through a couple of instructor schools with it, but generally my duty guns don't get a whole lot of round count through them. I'll buy a secondary that I'll train with that just to kind of keep that one freshened up, so to speak. Um, and all I did was fight tendonitis constantly with the, the, the 40. So as soon as nine millimeter bonded ammo started hitting the NIJ DOJ 
mm-hmm. performance standards like with monotonous regularity i was like okay i can i can i can make the transition and uh consequently you know it's you know the more we learn about handguns and wound dynamics and all that there really wasn't a whole lot of difference in any of them ever it was just you know now now we're 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 kind of more on a level playing field with hollow point ammo and and i'm certainly a fan of bonded ammo i'll put it that way but but that's the reason I stuck with 40 so long is being the prominent LE cartridge. Of course, that's the one the manufacturer said, hey, this is bonded 40 cal ammo. It's like, yeah, and I think it's what you, you came into the business with too, right? So like right. you came in with the 40, you'd already been shooting the 35. Mm-hmm. You came into the business with the 40. Uh, I came from the Cold War era military. Right. And dur- during a stint as a 60 gunner, um, I had a 1911 issued to me. Now, didn't know what I was doing with it, but I had one issued to me. Um, got off active duty, went to my first reserve unit, and SIG P220s and 45 were real common. Yeah. Among, like personally owned guns among yeah. guys. I got hired on at an agency where the 1911 was a big deal. We'd had a couple very competent gunsmiths. One had been a sergeant for the agency. One was a reserve who had built, well, I want to say there were at least 11s in holsters out of 250 guys. Wow. And out of the other 150, it was majority revolvers and then an odd Browning high power or a two digit Smith, you know, or something weird along those lines. And I say weird because it wasn't what everybody was used to. So I, stuck on the the 45 train from my first 21 years in the job. Wow. Yeah. You know, and it was all 1911. And I did a year with an MMP in 45, went back to a 1911 and then finally made the leap to nine mil and plastic frame guns. Yeah. The um, it's, it's been a really interesting thing, even in my tenure, uh, you know, my, my father before me, they had just approved 45 in like 1990 uh and they were making the transition to semi-autos uh from about 86 to about 90 and we didn't you know my agency didn't issue a semi-auto pistol until 1990 it was all 60 model 65 smiths and uh, ruger security sixes if you had smaller hands you know and you could go through an auto transition course or, or something to that effect uh but when I hired on, there was a lot of, uh, two digit and four digit Smiths, which, you know, I mean, that wasn't that long ago. Um, there were a lot of gen one, gen two, nine, uh, Glocks, uh, a lot of two, two, six. So when 40 and the guys that were in the era, when they approved 45, they, it was, well, I carry a two, two, six, nine millimeter. So I'm just going to jump to a or a, a two twenty forty five. I'm just going to jump to the same platform, and you would see that commonality. Um, most of the guys that carry a forty five now were the guys that, when they approved forty fives, jumped on that train. You know, and we're those that's starting to kind of go away as as time moves on. But uh, but it was an interesting era in that everybody had their their opinion on, yeah. and most of the new guys, it was. The only thing they knew was 40. And when the yeah. 40 started having problems, rather than go to another cartridge, they went to another platform. So, and that's the boat that I was in was. And I had a couple guys, a couple of my instructors, because by that point I was the lead instructor in the program. 
who went to the MMPs in 40 and had great success with them and still carry them. That's, you know, that's surprising to me, honestly. <laughs> well, but, the, 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 and it, it, you know, and everybody's got different perspectives and stuff. We'd always had really good luck with the MMPs. Yeah. Those of us that carried them as an optional weapon. Um, I th- one of the things that was fascinating, you hit on this was the bullet weights uh-huh. and it was bullet weights and muzzle velocity. So I can't remember the exact numbers, but I was running our muzzle velocity on our 180 grain ball, then on our duty ammo, and then on our frangible. And I think the frangible is like a 125 grain, 40 frangible. That was on the far side of 1200 feet per second. Then I'd get down to our ball rounds, which weren't having issues. And they were running like 1150-ish, maybe below that. And then when I got down to our duty ammo, it was down high nines, low tens. And that's where we were having the issues. Then I'm talking to Haggard and Chuck has already played the whole game of 165 to 180, different manufacturers, different bullet profiles. You know, it's one of those where, okay, this week, that manufacturer's 165 grain load with that profile works great. A year from now, they have changed the profile and changed the powder charge behind it, and it's not working anymore. So, interestingly enough, along those lines, and uh, I still have a ton of this ammo, by the way, but uh, because my SIG never cared, it was the Honey Badger of 40s. It, it put whatever in it, it'll run it. Um, but I'm sitting in the arms room one night, we're doing an in service, night aren't in service, you know, and, and, uh, I look and we had gotten bonded golden saber Remington and a lot of people, you know, have their pet ammos, federal spear, whatever. Um, this Remington ammo, we had had just fantastic success with it. And they're like, Hey, we just got another batch in and we take it out. And I look and there's these power belts, like a, like I pulled one out of the casing and there were power belts, like a, like a, uh, like a Sabo or something from a black powder cartridge. And I'm like, Ooh, that's I'm talking like almost on some of the old wide cutter stuff. Yeah. Semi wide cutter stuff. And, and it even set it on the box power belted. And I look okay. and I'm like, okay, so the actual projectile is a little skinnier. So that's going to help with copper fouling and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I wonder if that's more accurate. And I go shoot it. And the stuff is phenomenally accurate. And we have people lined up from this in service that are now shooting this new ammo and they're, their G22s are choking. And of course, everybody goes, well, yep. it's the ammo. So uh, consequently, I got a whole bunch of that ammo that night because they didn't want it turned back in for guns that w- weren't going to work with it. But but I, I remember looking at that and going, huh. So for like six months, we were chasing the ammo rabbit. Right. And I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm shooting the SIG and I, 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 was tuned into like Haggard stuff and some other people's stuff. And I'm going, I think it's the bullet weight. I think it's the bullet. And that was consequently the exact same time that we had authorized gun lights and everybody had put them on and we had a a train up on them. Well, and it was immediately after that, there was problem after problem after problem. And, (coughs) you know, we just finally said, Hey, no more of that gun. Um, and it's worked out, but also at that same time, it was like within a six month period, they said, Hey, look, all the spear ammo and all the HST and all this, it's all bonded now in nine millimeter. 
So there wasn't a huge, um, and, and we, we traded G 22s for G 17 straight across. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there, so there wasn't like a big lag in, uh, you know, 40 to nine. And that was the only time I ever like remember in law enforcement, people going like, you're going to make me carry a smaller gun or a smaller cartridge. And nobody complained. It was like, yeah. nobody got wrapped around the axle about it. So we, we thought it was going to be a big deal yeah, to try to push the nine. I mean, and here I was, I was a 1911 guy, carried the 45, you know, the, the, the all steel frame man gun that had won two world wars. Uh, and I remember when I believed that, uh, but we thought it was going to be a big deal telling guys that we were going to pull the forties and put them in the nine. And we thought there was going to be pushback on it. And so I sat down and wrote up, uh, it was a two or three page email with gelatin tests and recovered bullets and everything else and pushed it out. And I got like two, two responses out of like 250, 300 deputies. It was like, Hey, wow, you write well. Yeah. Uh, okay. That was it. Nobody, nobody wanted to fight. And I had probably had one or two guys going, Hey, can I buy my 22 and keep it? Yeah, sure. But we're not convinced that that gun's going to continue to work. Right. Yeah. And it it wasn't that the gun was bad. It wasn't that the cartridge was bad because Lord knows the cartridge wasn't, there was just a combination at that time of internal design effects from the weapon mounted light bullet weight and muzzle velocity that all came together in a bad way. And, and service life of those guns. Some of those guns, those early gen threes, I knew guys that had, three and 4,000 rounds through them with no real maintenance other than, you know, field maintenance. Uh, and then they put a light on it and you know, they'd been in service for four or five years and then with the capability. And then when lights get authorized, it was, it was that coming together of everything that smashed in and, and on the lights, it wasn't just sure fires. Yeah. Spring loaded bar. Yeah, it wasn't stream lights, twisted clamp screw. It was everything. It was anything that was impacting the ability of the frame to flex. Yeah, anything that that straightened out that frame was having that problem. Yeah, and it's uh, but all of that smashing in together there, um, is really what killed the forty. And then yeah. when we saw the advent of you know bonded nine millimeter and guys are going, I get two, three, four more rounds in the gun and I don't get a a degradation of performance or an expect expectation that drops of performance. But the, the other, the other side of that was guys are like, man, this is way easier to shoot. And we're talking cops that had grown up on forties that had, that didn't know what nine millimeter was, you know, that because, you know, you're talking your, your your big city cop that his gun is the same as his pen in his shirt. It's just a piece of equipment. It's not there. There's no marriage to anything with it. Yeah. And uh, how much of that was perception? How much of that was real? Yeah. And, and I and I wonder about that. And I had just just before you sent me the text with the Zoom link, I was watching a Rob Hot video that he had done with Ken Hackathorn. Yeah. Several years ago, and they were going to shoot the one through five drill with a Beretta 9, 40, and 45. Yeah, the PX4, when they were pushing the PX4 storm. PX4. Yeah. So it, it's funny because Rob comes up 
shoots the first run with the nine mil and he's got a time of six point something with two rounds out into the, the non-vital scoring area. So he's, so he's ends up with like an eight point something. Then he shoots it with the 40 Cal shoots an eight something time frame, but dropped one. So now he's up to the nine and they turns around, shoots it with a 45, but has to do a reload in the middle of it. Right. Right. So it's just like, okay, well, and, and Rob's not, Rob's not anorexic. Um, no. He's got good grip strength. He's got, you know, good ability to run the gun and just nine to 40. There was a two second difference. So I'm not sure where it is in there. Is it how much of it was perceived? How much of it was actual? Well, and, and at the time, uh, at the time, all this was going on, your USPSA guys were dominating limited class with 40 Smith and Wesson. Yeah. Well, Cause they were making major power factor. Yep. And, uh, they were, I mean, those were some, some race car guns, but, um, when I, when I got hired on, I remember in the time frame that I was in the Academy until I was kind of off my new hire probation, we had like two or three officer involved shootings and none of the suspects survived. Like it was like it, people just looked at the 40, like it's a death ray, right? Like it's a laser beam that just steals, you know, criminal souls, whatever. Um, and when I look back in history on that time, all three of those shootings had two to three rounds high center chest could have been a 22 long rifle. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it could have been a 38 wide cutter. It wouldn't have really played that much, you know, the bullet wouldn't, but it helped to perpetuate that. Oh man, this is the thing. And, uh, when all that smashed together and, and I remember seeing people that had never shot it, I mean, you've met the cops that the only gun they've ever fired in their life is the one they carry. Mm -hmm. and, oh yeah. And I remember those guys, when we started reissuing the nine millimeters and we're getting them up to speed, like, Hey, it's, it's your mag pouches work the same, whatever. Um, I remember the first, first couple guys going, wow, that's way easier to shoot. And okay. now these, you know, these are people that don't have, you know, they're, they're not, you know, me, you, Daryl Wayne, the guys that put in a lot of time and effort learning a platform or, or or developing grip strength and dexterity. They're just average Joe. And when they, they come out and they go, Oh man, that doesn't hurt my elbows or my shoulders to okay. shoot in a, in a 25 or 50 round qual. So that kind of helped to alleviate some of that. Okay. We're going to a, a platform that's just as effective. It's smaller and it's a little easier to manage, uh, especially shot to shot with, with a minimal amount of input of training, if that makes sense. Like, and one of the other things, I don't know how much this weighs in, but this was just my, my, my experience organizationally. When we started to realize the problem was 2010, we were still dealing with the financial fallout from 08. Yeah. And, and it, that was when it was actually hitting counties harder because we'd now gone through a couple of years of decreased tax revenue. Yeah. Foreclosures so I, and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So when I go to the admin with this problem, we had, we had five options that we, we could propose to them. Do absolutely nothing, right? Not viable. We, we were going to tell you this isn't viable. Strip the lights off the guns and then do nothing else. But we've already seen this problem with a gun that's never had a light on it. Right. Open up completely. Go out and look for a brand new gun. But we're going to need, you know, a bunch of ammo and a bunch of money to buy new guns and all this other stuff, Right. 
or do these other testing things. We gave, we gave them five options. And ultimately what it came down to was the only viable option we had was to go to a Gen 440 because financially we couldn't afford to do the testing. Right. And we couldn't afford organizationally to not do anything about it. Yeah. Ours got swapped. Like I said, ours got swapped out one for one with, uh, with, uh, G 17s. And when you think about an agency that has about 800 people that are issued, you know, a platform, and now you have the equivalent platform in a different cartridge. Um, so wrap for the listener, wrap your head around this. If I have to replace issued equipment, say a holster, and maybe the agency price on that holster is a hundred bucks. And now I have 800 of them to purchase mag pouches that you go, well, shoot mag pouches are $35. Okay. Times 800. Yep. That starts to become substantial, uh, yes. really fast. Uh, you know, and that was the stuff that we were looking at was yeah. like, even if we can go to something else, we're going to have all these other costs. And when we, when we got rid of the 40, the gen four forties in 2014, myself and uh, the sergeant guy was the sergeant who was charged the program at the time. We got a van from the County and we loaded up all our leftover 40 ammo, packed this thing as full as we could drove to Southern California to two different ammo dealers and traded out our 40 for nine. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's another thing people, you know, when, when it comes to agencies don't really understand the logistical aspect of, Hey, um, think about how much space that takes up in a closet to train an agency of 200. Well, now five times that over here. And, uh, it, it was, it was a really, Oh, how to say it. Like, uh, it opened my eyes to, there is more than just, we have a gun problem or that we have an ammo problem. It it's, you know, how many man hours now are required to get that person out of a patrol car to the range now have an instructor with them to shoot 50 rounds to get reacquainted with the, a a platform that they already know. So it made sense to stick with the same, the same company, the same brand, the same size, everything else, because we're now 50,000 rounds into this. If we do this, 50,000 rounds. I mean, people, I've heard people go, Oh, I shoot 50,000 rounds a year. And I go, no, you don't, uh, you know, um, but there again, it's just all of that came together all in. I think it was like Oh nine for, for the Midwest about 2009. It was like this massive car crash. And when we sorted out all the pieces, everybody went, okay, let's just go with nine millimeter. And, uh, and see, I think, yeah, it hit us 2010, 2011 by, tw- by summer of 2011, you know, I'd already dealt with Glock at shot. I'd had Glock out at my range. Um, we were into gen four forties, 2013, we started to see the issues with the gen fours. So by 2014, summer of 2014, we were into gen four, nine mils. Yeah. And we've, we've stayed with them. Um, we had a couple shootings right before I retired, um, all of which involved window glass, you know, rounds penetrated the window glass, stopped the suspects. Yeah. 
did a great job stopping the suspects. Um, and then I want to say year two ago, year last year, they made the decision to switch from uh, the federal HST stuff to Hornaday critical duty. Now there's so it's eight years later. Yeah. Eight years later, we're still carrying nine mil Glocks. You know, we, the only thing we've changed is ammo, and that kind of mirrors the progression that the FBI and at least one other big West Coast agency made. Yeah, and I've got an FBI agent, retired friend, that I I want to get him on the podcast, but he's really, like, apprehensive, and he's he's getting up in years, and he was actually assigned at Quantico when the 10-millimeter testing happened. And some of the stuff that he's disclosed to me, I don't know if he's on an NDA for it, but, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I was like, wow. Uh, but consequently the results of that are why we now have a regimented process of yes. DOJ and IJ certification for ammunition performance, yep. uh, that, that was born out of this just, um, you know, hey, Jim Bob made some gel. Let's go shoot it and show everybody how great the 10 is. If I remember right, Ed Morales was up at Quantico and involved. Ed Morales was the FBI mm-hmm. special agent who ran the 871 handed after yeah. getting his forearm shattered and then closed with Platinum with a revolver one handed and ended the whole Miami event. Yeah. Uh, just for folks that aren't familiar. He just wrote a book, but, too. Uh, yeah, if I remember right, his from the book, he was up at Quantico during that 10 mil testing time. Um, the other guy, and he's a bit too far away for me to get to, but Buford Boone, who was not the current head of the ballistic research facility, but the previous head of the BRF, um, he's retired. I want to say he's down in Arkansas now. And every so often he'll run a ballistics class. I know he's got one coming up in the near future. It's it's a day or two, and it's just the whole process of evaluating ballistics. And I'm going to have um, to mark both that on those my guys would be fascinating. Either of them would be fascinating. Both would be just pretty solid to hear their thoughts on everything. Yeah, I the the guy that that is a friend of mine. And Tom listens every now and then, but uh, I won't disclose his full identity. But he had a rather interesting career, and I used to get a lot of secondary 10 millimeter ammo from him because he was the guy that he, I won't say he's a gun guy, but the equipment that he was issued, he was a gun guy about, if that makes right. sense. It's yeah. kind of like the the military guy that falls in love with the, the M4 platform, right? It, and could care less about a, you know, a, a Mossberg shotgun, whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, he had a 10 millimeter MP five issued. And when he would chamber around operationally and he would safe that gun trunk, safe that gun, he had a box of, of just an empty cardboard box and the round that was loaded would go in the empty cardboard box and never go into one of his guns again. And I asked him, Interesting. I, was, I was like, what, why do you do that? That's like, and he'd go because they'll give me more of it. And, and he said, I don't know, like, he's like, I can't prove this, but I know when that round gets loaded in an, behind an MP5 spring that's running 10 millimeter and it hits a feed ramp and it does this, that, or the other, I don't know that I want to trust that again. Okay. And I was like, well, and, and that's been kind of a common theme, right? A lot of places you'll hear different numbers on it, but a lot of guys are like, I, I won't chamber around more than twice. 
Um, and there's concerns about shortening the overall length setback and have yeah setback. Um, I've also seen concerns about with rifle ammo about dead primers. Now Mm -hmm. can't prove it. Um, agency local to me had at the very least an unintended discharge in their SWAT vehicle rolling to a call when a dude chambered we went to chamber around as the bolt went forward, the round fired. Now the claim is weapon was on safe finger was off the trigger and it was the over sense, overly sensitized primer. I can remember working a range several years ago and having a couple hour gap between people. And I just sat there and kept chambering the same round over and over again in my M4 pointed down range just to see what would happen. It, when I finally, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to shoot this thing. And I was on the far side of 60. It fired. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And that was a sample of one. Right. And, and I've seen anomalies like that across the spectrum, yeah. um, but I've never seen a train wreck that happened like what happened with the 40 Smith and Wesson. Yeah. And, you know, when all your major sales outlet for a particular cartridge happens to be military and law enforcement, as soon as they go, we're not going to shoot that anymore. Yeah. It kind of goes by the wayside. Uh, and I am not, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of mutual friends of ours about forties and I'm not, I don't poo poo them like, ah, you know, I mean, I still think it's a viable thing. It's a, it's a, but now with the cost of ammunition, you know, in the good days, I could order a case of nine millimeter for under 200 bucks. Yep. I couldn't order a case of 40 Smith and Wesson for less than about three. Um, you know, it was a third more in everything, brass, ammo, powder, everything. So, you know, for me that the logistics of it, uh, really killed it, um, just to keep shooting it personally. And I think that impacted a lot of agencies. And we talked about, you know, trying to supply everybody with duty ammo, training ammo. I think once people started to look at the cost of nine mil again, you know, pre COVID pre urban unrest over the last couple of years, but when everybody was start, when a lot of places were starting to make that change, the sheer cost for an agency really argued for going to the was another argument for going to the nine. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, man, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and hopefully, the listening audience one they got a history lesson on gun lights. Uh, thanks, Eric. That was <laughs> I, you were pulling pages out of my notebook I haven't seen for years. So. Um, well, it, where that comes up a lot of the times is like the remote switches on the surefires. Yeah, because you get the you get the, the kids now who'd never seen the SL switches, who'd never seen the nitrolons or the classics that came hardwired. Well, I put my first pistol light on a gun in '99. It was a classic with the the hardwired switch. Then I went to a nitrolon with the hardwired SL switch. So I've never run the rocker switches. I've always been a remote switch. Yeah. I've um, in somewhere in my dad's gear is a surefire from, I want to say 88 or nine. That was for a, uh, a SIG 220 where you actually replace the takedown lever. And this thing yep. encompassed the dust cover of the gun yep. and had a, had a remote switch pressure switch on the front of it and yep. uh the thing the looks six volt three volt and six volt classics yep and the thing looks like it's archaic by today's standards um but there again i've been in the, the gun world long enough that you know i remember guns before 
there was even a, a light rail option. Yep. And hence the Dawson and all these other things. And well, the Dawson was so cool when it came out mm-hmm. because it gave those of us with slick dust covers, the ability to move from the classic lights to something else. Yeah. And I remember four digit Smiths with a bolt on light rail option. Yep. Um, you know, in three fifty six TSW, <laughs> like that's dating myself. You know, and it's funny to have these conversations with people, and they look at me and they go, "You don't have enough gray hair to know that topic." And mm. I'm like, "I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm getting there." But uh, you know, I've been shooting like frequently since I was about eleven years old, so that's thirty one years. And having a dad that had a gun shop and was a cop and, you know, being in the military and seeing all these transitions come through, it's like, I, it was weird. I always thought it was kind of useless information. And now as we look back through history, it's like, oh no, you were kind of like sitting in the front row seat to all this stuff happening, which is kind of cool. Um, it's, it's nice to be able to understand how we made those changes mm -hmm. from the front row. Right. Like looking back, like I'll sit there and talk to the guys who were my predecessors at my old org and like, okay, how did you get from there to here to where we were when I came into the program? Right. And then, so it gives you some perspective for how things changed as I went forward. And I, and I lucked out down at Gunsight with some of the, the more senior guys that I got to work for over my time there and hear the changes that evolved over time. Like just, listening to the Helms and Mudget talk about indirectly because I haven't heard it from their from them in person, but how we went from a Mozambique to a failure drill. Yeah. And and just the history of it wasn't just one day somebody decided this. There there were things that led up to these things, but knowing what they are. Yeah. And you know, today's today's cop that's got five to seven years on probably has no idea like the history of the 40 Smith and Wesson. So hopefully yeah. we maybe and, and the public too. I mean, imagine being Joe concealed carrier that, that stays active in training and all of a sudden everybody dumps a cartridge just yeah. goes and, and no real perspective as to why. And I can't imagine like, and I, I have some, some friends that are in the civilian circles that when that all happened, we're kind of like, well, I don't have problems with this or this, and I still carry a 40 and this, and everybody's getting away from it. Why? And it's like, you know, imagine the confidence breaker that is yeah. when you, you don't have any perspective other than, ah, well, we're dumping that. And it's like, yeah. hey, that's still a good car. It's, there's nothing wrong with that cartridge at all. Um, I And that was one of the things was trying to explain to people that you're a sample of one. And yeah. I'm not arguing yeah. for, for your, right. But I'm having to look at this organizationally. I'm having to look at 300 full-time or part-time deputies equipping them and making sure everything works. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and I'm kind of an oddball. I'm a real 10 millimeter fan for certain applications and I love 38 super. I absolutely love that cartridge and trying to explain to people why, Hey, that's never taken off as a, an LE cartridge or a, you know, a concealed carry cartridge is, is really kind of, uh, uh, it, and then at the same time go, but I, but I do carry them and love them. I just, it's just not the application I want for 
churning out high round counts and all this other stuff and going to training and things like that. So when I, when I get to free America on the short list of things I'm picking up is a 10 mil handgun and I'll start looking for a 38 super just because of the history of that cartridge. Well, if I can find one of the old 1911s and 38 super, I'll be real happy. Yeah. Well, I happen to know a guy that is real fond of them. And uh, if you happen to move to free Oklahoma, we, <laughs> we can accommodate. And uh, I, I don't want visitation. I, I want custody. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but but we can we can help you make an informed decision as <laughs> as to why. Uh, and, and I'm going to give away a little secret as to why I love the 38 Super, especially the modern ones is when you if you're a hand loader and you load a 90 grain bullet and you see this just laser beam go down range and then you load like 150 grain competition bullet and you load it down around like 700 feet per second and you're shooting 38 wad cutter out of the same okay. gun it's an amazing t- it's like um you know i i tell people a lot like nine millimeter 40 smith and wesson 45 acp there's only so much you there's only so much powder you can or cannot put in that and there's only a bullet that's so big or so small yep. that you can put in that when you get into those long cartridges that are skinny you can do all kinds of cool stuff with them and uh you know a, a 38 or 10 millimeter with 165 grain bullets one of the few handguns i've shot like an eight inch group at 200 yards with like that's cool right like you can go that's awesome uh you know but there again you know there were conditions it wasn't like it was uh like i just went out and did it but uh yeah. But it's the same with, you know, wheel guns, the, the 45 long Colt, the 460 XVR and all the points in between. Um, and you can get my propeller spinning. But so what would you say to the modern American law enforcement officer that went, you know, I'm looking into this 40 Smith and Wesson thing for a final thought. It, it's still viable. I'd look at the platform. I, I would look for a platform that had very little flex in it. Um, more, more metal is better. This would be one of the few times I'll say, uh, uh, the more metal in the gun is better than more polymer. Um, if you're looking at it for you as an individual, cause your agency gives you wide latitude, make sure it runs, get a couple guns and make sure it runs in both of them. So you have a spare. If you're looking at it from an agency perspective and you're, you're wanting to outfit an agency, I, I would tell you the same thing, but you're going to have to look at a much bigger sample of that gun. Like not just test one or two and then try to outfit a hundred person department, test 10 and then try to outfit a department. You're going to pay a little bit more for ammo. Performance on soft tissue seems to be pretty much the same, but for a handgun and that's the handgun's got the limitations. It is a little bit better on vehicle penetration, not a whole lot, but a little bit. All right, episode 70, 40 Smith and what? Thanks, Eric Gellhouse. Uh, if you know the running joke, you know what to do now, right? All right, a reminder, check out our sponsors. Sponsors, Excess Sites, title sponsor of the podcast. Good folks in Texas making good sites for your pistol, rifle, shotgun. CCW Safe, Off-Duty 10. EDC Belt Co., the Foundation Belt. I forgot to mention yet again in the pre-show. 
the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway. Sign up weekly. Links in the show notes. Also, Guardian Conference 2022. It is on the horizon September 16th, 17th, 18th in Oklahoma City. I'll put out more information on episode 71. I'll be back there again teaching. Uh, Got AJ Zito signed up. Mick Shook, my brother. Mick Shook is going to be there. Uh, Wayne Dobbs. uh, Check it out at guardianconference.com. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.